0: Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, The Pirates of the Golden Age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book,
1: Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it. In Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems, and business models that are no longer fit for purpose.
0: And I went from being Sam's right hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there, people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. This week's episode is particularly special because I'm talking to a woman who is still mid-rebellion. In 2021, Jamie Klingler and a group of women founded a new campaign group, Reclaim These Streets, in response to the death of Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old marketing executive who was raped and murdered by Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins. The group organised a vigil for Sarah on Clapham Common in London, which was then violently broken up by the police and several people were arrested. The police cited breaches in coronavirus restrictions, but since then, Jamie and Reclaim These Streets have taken the Met Police to the High Court – to challenge them over the illegality of the vigil. She was in court just a week before this chat, so I'm really honoured to have Jamie on here to explain the events in a bit more detail. And we also talk more broadly about what fueled her to take this on. I think you'll agree that she is an absolute force and a pirate you'd be very happy to have on your side. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks so much for taking some time out from what has been stressful, hectic, but presumably pretty life-changing experience over the last couple of weeks. And also just an extraordinary couple of years for you.
1: In terms of being pirate or getting parachuted into a situation and really using skills from other areas of my life to something that I never thought I would find myself doing. It's been really interesting, really stressful, really sad at times, really exciting at times. Actually, knowing that you can really,
0: really change your life is quite empowering. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I want to take us back to the beginning of what I'm going to call it a year of transformation. I think those were your words as you wrote about it. Just a quick question before that. Obviously, you're now an activist. Had you ever done any activism or what you describe as activism before Reclaim These Streets?
1: I had done some stuff when I was in high school and a little bit in college, and then the Trump stuff, like the Women's March Against Trump and when Trump did the Muslim ban. So i had done some stuff with that, and I've been an organizer in terms of making events or making things happen my whole life, but in terms of defining myself as an activism or like enjoying protesting. My mom was very, very politically active and my dad was when they were together. And almost as a rejection of all that, we went to so many things when I was little and we went to so much. But I think there's something when you move to a different country, it's not your politics. It's not where you think you're going to end up forever. And even learning it, For me, my first vote here, I voted Lib Dem, and then they did a coalition with the Conservatives. And I felt so alarmed and rejected by that, that I felt really, really jostled. Like, I was like, how? Like, I didn't understand how that all happened or how that all worked. And it really left me feeling super disillusioned.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I actually felt the opposite. I was like, wow, they're actually got some shred of power by building a kind of bridge. It didn't quite end how I'd wanted it to, but I did think initially, maybe this is a positive step. But you're right, you do tend to opt out when you're in a different country and go, right, shut the doors. This isn't for me. This is not mine to deal with. The beginning of your move into activism, starting Reclaim These Streets began with the pandemic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I run events, so, but they were like food festivals and brand activations and marketing. And with all of everything getting shut down, that avenue was gone. And so for the first time in my adult life, I didn't have employment and I didn't have something to fill my days or fill my nights. I was drinking too much and I was quickly spiraling and I've written a little bit about it. So I was in trouble. It could have gone one of two ways. For whatever reason, I pulled the plug and called time and I quit drinking. And actually, that gives you so much time. When you were drinking the amount I was drinking and in the pub, the amount I was in the pub, like that's like five or six hours of every day that you all of a sudden have at your disposal. And there's a big chunk of that that's just boredom because you're trying to figure out how do you make those hours go away and how do you make yourself occupied? And I'm a huge, huge reader, but no one can read as much time as I had on my hands. And so for me, like the domino effect me quitting drinking then allowed all kinds of other things to happen and allowed me to feel more citizen, feel more a part of the world, have a lot more time for news and everything like that. But it was slower than that. So I quit drinking in April of 2020. Like five or six months later, I took up running. Then I joined Noom because I decided if I could figure out the drinking stuff, I could take control of my health and my weight. And then I broke up with my long, long long-term boyfriend in that December. And then I went away for January and February of 2021. And while I was away, it was just kind of a reset for me to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I still wasn't sure. And then I got back and Sarah Everard went missing. And I think it was the combination of being alone in my flat, watching the news incessantly and just seeing her face all the time and that little tiny, tiny glimmer of hope And just wanting it to go away and wanting someone to find her somewhere and wanting the fairy tale ending that we could all feel safe again. And then there was the anger. There was police telling women the only way to keep themselves alive was to stay inside. And we were already locked down. And so like, if you extrapolate that, am I not supposed to go to Am I not supposed to walk my dog? Am I supposed to become an agoraphobic woman who can't leave this little tiny flat I live in? And at that point, what is my worth and what is my life worth if I can't live it? If it's so infringed upon by what the government is saying I'm doing and what my fear of men, like, what is the point? Because I've been in magazines for a long time, I tweeted that I was going to do a vigil for Sarah. And there were local women that were also doing a vigil. We met and joined forces. And this was the Wednesday night that her remains were tragically found. And by Thursday morning, we were like, all systems go. So I was going to do the PA system and get the little electric lights and the logistics And then on Thursday at like 2.30 in the afternoon, Scotland Yard said we couldn't go ahead. We ended up getting lawyers. We raised a bunch of money to sue them to say we should go ahead. We were in high court on the Friday. And for me, I'm not from here. The idea that I ended up a claimant in high court in three days time was insane. And part of the reason I was a different claimant than the girls that were in Clapham was because I'm not registered for a political party. And I was an events manager. So because I came from a different route to entry, my case and my reasoning was different than the women that were local counselors. I, see. I gave my statements that night. And so we ended up in high court. And like, it was either going to be that the judge said, you can go ahead. And then we had to scramble to get all the stewards and all that stuff. You can't go ahead. Or they just decided not to hear it. So we were like 20 hour days freaking out. It happened so, so quickly. And we knew people were going to go anyway if we didn't go. But we ended up in actually one of the best meetings of my life. So there were nine of us that night. And basically, the judge said that the police had to give us the parameters within which we could go ahead. And we had to follow those parameters. But we should meet after the court. So we went and we were in the meeting with the police. And they sent out a press release saying that it was an illegal gathering while we were negotiating. That's how much respect and good faith they had. So we left and we were threatened with £10,000 each in fines and prosecution under the Serious Crimes Act. So for me, I don't own property here or in America, but I was probably the one that was least afraid to get arrested because I also know a lot of people in the media and I could raise the money to get myself out of it. But of the nine of us, we went around the room and it was, why are we doing this? What outcome do we want to get to? What are our fears and what are our goals? And so we went around and what I thought was going to be like this huge war about what was going to happen ended up lots and lots of tears. Somebody was worried about their parliamentary past. Somebody was worried about their citizenship. But actually where we got to was us going ahead and getting arrested and raising that money and giving that money to the police who does that benefit? Where do we get? Have we sidetracked too much from what we were actually trying to protest? Because this becomes what everyone's looking at, not violence against women and girls. The other big thing was there were 32 other satellite protests that were supposed to take place. And those women were not in the room with us to make a decision about their futures. So if they all got fined, we didn't know that we could raise enough money to help them. And it's like, when you're talking about custody, when you're talking about bankruptcy, when you're talking about careers, and we knew if we pulled out and we pivoted and we raised money for women and girls groups, then we could make women and girls groups central and violence against women and girls groups central again. We didn't need to physically be there for that to happen. The next morning I announced on Jenny Kleeman's show at 6 a.m. We were like with our lawyers at 5 a.m., everybody together. We made our fundraiser go live and we raised 550,000 pounds that didn't go to the police, which I'm quite pleased about. But for legality reasons, we all had to be on camera and BC not to be there and to watch the B roll live when I was about to go on BBC and watch women get kneeled on and manhandled, like, I still regret that I didn't go. I still feel like I let people down, that I told people to go and I didn't go myself, even though I then told them not to go. It was so painful that that's how they decided to police it. And the continuation of that is we were in court last week, and they're still basically saying we're not smart enough to figure out the difference between illegal and contravening the regulations. And then if we really believed that they were threatening us and telling us not to go, even though we have it on camera, that we should have gone ahead and gotten arrested and then fought it. It's more about controlling and belittling us than actually looking at what we're saying. Like, De Dick went on and said we were naive young women, that we thought we could do this. And it is more painful coming from a woman. It just is. But in terms of being a pirate, we had no idea that the police would force our hand in the way the police forced our hand. Had they just let us have the vigil, it literally would have been five camera crews and my life would have gone back to normal on Sunday. It never would have been the last year of campaigning. It never would have been the fundraising. It never would have been the 400 media appearances that I've done.
0: And you've shone such a spotlight on that. So to some extent, the police actions, because they've highlighted such, put it diplomatically, flaws in their process or just, you know, outright sort of, yeah, like you say, manhandling, that's come to light now and you've been able to shine a light on that. That's spurred a whole new conversation and that's really valuable. So in a way, although it's a traumatic experience to be arrested and to have to go through that, it's opened up something, I hope.
1: It has and it hasn't. When I was home for Christmas and I'm trying to explain it to my elderly grandmother, the work I'm doing, the thing that's so crazy is that I get invited on all these programs to say men shouldn't kill us and I deserve to get home safe. And everyone's like, wow, that's really profound. It's not profound. It's basic. It's absolutely basic that I should be able to go about my life without a pervasive level of fear. And the fact that people have me on all the time, and that's literally all I say, I don't say anything that's groundbreaking other than talking about everyday aggressions and the everyday fears and the everyday things that all women live with. And the fact that that has changed the conversation is shocking because we all know it. We've all known it forever.
0: This is precisely what Be More Pirate's about, that you grow up with these ideas of what is normal. And we've just accepted and internalized the idea that men are violent a lot of the time. There's a lot of violence against women around the world. And, you know, it's, I think what we've internalized in the West is that like, oh, it's not as bad as in X country. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And actually a lot of it's under the radar. And so much of all violence comes from domestic violence. Like
1: the circle of terrorism and domestic violence is absolutely a circle. The mental health crisis with young men and boys is so much about violence. Men being violent to men, men being violent to women. The common denominator is it's men's violence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to come back to that. It's a big topic. (laughs) But just to go back to the police and the way that they dealt with it, because I had a similar experience a couple of years ago when we were trying to hold a citizens sort of assembly as part of an Extinction Rebellion protest in Trafalgar Square, and the police had said that we could do it socially distanced and it was so much precaution was taken to make sure that people stayed apart and all of that and then suddenly half an hour before they changed their minds and everyone's thrown into a kind of panic and stress and you know you try and carry it out but then you really look like you're doing something terrible like the sense of you're really immoral and and quite criminal to do something that is almost basically just a discussion (laughs)
1: The next day, the deputy commissioner was like, everyone crowded in because there wasn't a speaker. And I was like, I have the speaker in my living room. You told me I couldn't bring it. You took away all the infrastructure. And then it was like, look what you made me do. And this is the whole thing where it turned around on us for being irresponsible. Like they didn't do a risk assessment. They didn't care about public health. Their own documents said the biggest risk was public confidence in policing that's what came out yeah, in court
0: Right, right. It was
1: not about saving our lives. It was about shutting us up and silencing us. The worst thing you can do is try to silence me. Like that's when the Philly comes out hard. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. Silencing us and, and belittling us. I will be on every soapbox. I will be on every program, which is what we've done for the last year.
0: That's what I was trying to ask. Like, where was it coming from? You know, what was the agenda? Of the police. And it was this idea that they needed to be seen to be strong and aggressive and like quick off the mark.
1: It was that they knew it was Wayne Cousins and that us making a spectacle of it and us being furious, they wanted it tampered. They didn't want it on the front pages. It feels like it's been an episode of The Thick of It because every single action they did activated us. Every single thing they did motivated and infuriated more women to do more, to yell more, to be louder. This is my whole thing. Like when he was sentenced and the details about using his badge, using handcuffs and driving her for 80 kilometers, the police had that for six months. If I was crested a dick, I would have enacted five different strategies six months ago to make women safer. And so when that detail came out, I could point back and say, look at what we've already done. We absolutely know that this is heartbreaking, disgusting, and we knew you guys were all going to be bereft. So these are the things that we've already put in place. They didn't do anything. They said he was a former police officer. They had all these people saying, former officer, former officer, former officer. Then they said, flag down a bus, run in a shop, or ask somebody going by for help. If you think you're stopped by a fake officer, he wasn't a fake officer. If they had called into the station with his warrant card, he was a real cop. And then after that got ridiculed, they then did this whole FaceTime into a station. If he's a fake cop, this isn't about fake cops. It's about the real serving officers. I did a debate in Cambridge last week about the loss of confidence. And the problem is when you have police force that has spent so much money and so much time covering all this up for years and years and years, only one in 10 officers found guilty of gross misconduct are removed from the force. None of them lose their pensions. Like If you're convicted of a crime, 10% of them lose their pensions. Like It is golden handcuffs the whole way through. No matter what they do, 750 people, sexual misconduct, using the police database. If you're you and me and they're using the police database, we feel a bit vulnerable. We feel a bit pissed off. If you are someone that's just committed a crime and the officers know your criminal record and they have that in their hands, what they can do with that absolutely terrifies me. What happened to Dr. Duff that took nine years to come out this week? She handed a legal advice card to a vulnerable child in a shop. They took her back to Stoke Newington Police Station. They handcuffed her and tied her ankles and cut off her clothes and sexually assaulted her on camera. They said, treat her like a terrorist. It's taken eight years of her life to fight it, to get it out. And she got a £6,000 payoff. And it's finally public. And he didn't even get gross misconduct. And like the stories that I read this week from her and listening to her on Women's Hour, I didn't know I could still be this upset and this shocked.
0: I'm so sick of subduing of women's like outrage and passion. And I've said this before in this podcast to various guests that, you know, the inhibition from being told I've been too ranty in certain conversations at certain times and how much that used to shut me up. And now it doesn't shut me up at all. Oh God, I think somebody would get hit if they said it to me. <laughs> Oh, Yeah, but going back to what you said, that there were, there were things that they could have done differently that Cressida Dick could have put into place. And I want to talk about this more broadly, you know, in terms of the police being an institution, the kind of institutional behaviours that allow somebody to get not even gross misconduct and the public to be traumatised by that. What could they do differently, both in terms of actions to stop violence against women and girls, but also just in terms of their behaviours and the kind of internal culture?
1: Well, this is the thing being an outsider. So there was a report that came out about violence against women and girls. It was 168 pages that didn't say anything as an outsider reading it. I've never read these type of reports before. And I'm like, it basically said that you shouldn't treat a robbery the same way you treat a rape. And I'm like, a 14 year old in a like high school class could say that. Like, that's Captain Obvious. There was so much in it that was just really, really basic and obvious. And it's like, they're not recording crimes in the right way. They're not doing things in the right way. There's no definition of what good looks like. So if you and I were partners in a police station, and there was a pair of two men that were partners, and then there was a mixed male and female constable partnership, and each of us had 15 women come in to report a sexual assault. And if we had 15 women and 13 went to CPS, if the two men two went to CPS, and if the male-female one, eight went to CPS, there's clearly a pattern there of measurement. And you can say, what are the reasons that these aren't getting put forward? Because right now, conviction rate in this country is 1.7%. It's basically a non-prosecutable crime. None of this I knew. None of this was in my sphere, my world. And so it's things like that where They're not interested in blowing the doors open. In terms of the inquest and the inquiry about Sarah Everard and Wayne Cousins, they have made it really, really narrow, and it's not statutory. So cops don't have to testify. They don't have to give all the findings to the families. They don't have to answer to us at all. And it's all of this stuff where by not making things statutory, if it was you or me and you really want change... You blow the doors open. You have experts come in and tell you what you can do better. But they don't want that. They don't want anyone to tell them what to do or to make changes. Like when we met with Cressida Dick the Monday after the vigil, I point blank said to her personally, what would you do differently knowing what you know now? And she said nothing. Like she said the words nothing. Wow. If you're not interested in reform or change, you don't do reform or change. Yeah. So like this week there was a meeting and she was on camera and she was like, there's no systemic homophobia in the force. There's no systemic sexism in the force. There's no systemic racism in the force because apparently the force is not in this country. Apparently the force is immune to what happens everywhere else in this country. And this is the thing. It's like a monkey covering their eyes, ears and mouth. If you're not willing to get reform and if you're not willing to work at reform, because reform is really hard. You have to recognize things about yourself and you have to work towards progression and change. And if you don't need to do that, and if you can just hide everything.
0: Yes, it is sweeping under the rug.
1: For you and me personally, it is not easy for us to grow and learn. You have to think about things. You have to sleep on things. You have to read things. You have to invest time to make change. Now, if you're talking about an organization that for a million years has revolved around power and secrecy, to make that organization change and grow. You need to have experts. You need to blow the doors open. You need transparency. And none of that is available.
0: Yeah. I do find it astonishing because usually at least most institutions, there's one or at least a few people here and there who are willing to kind of buck the trend and like speak up.
1: Well, they just promoted Maggie Blythe as the um, czar of women and girls safety. She has no direct reports. She has no budget and she has no ability to enforce it. They're rolling her out for PR. But the Met treats women's safety like a PR exercise, not anything that's going to actually keep me alive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this just speaks to the kind of broader spectrum, I think, of purpose washing and greenwashing and things that go on when you're trying to, you're just completely unwilling to be transparent. Having established that the Met police is a lost cause, (laughs) let's just flip the conversation a little bit to what could we do citizens to tackle the problem of violence against women and girls? Because obviously you've demonstrated that there's a there's an element of activism, there's an element of, you know, just citizenship where we can step up, particularly men. And like we said, the conversation has shifted and people are talking about the responsibility of men a bit more.
1: In my own life, the conversations I'm having with men and male friends and people that I love, one of the things that we've been talking about is in terms of a mugging. Like if a man gets mugged, they are worried about their property If we get mugged, we're worried about getting raped. And that difference, like at the point that somebody's hands are on me, I don't care about my phone. I don't care about my bag. And I was trying to talk to somebody last weekend about it. And the thing that really clicked was I was like, you guys need to see the power, whereas you guys aren't thinking about it. I was like, if we're in a pub and you're hitting on me in open space where I can see my friends, fine. But if I'm coming out of the loo and you're blocking my exit and I don't have a way to get back to my friends without physically having to get past you, that power struggle makes my heckles go. That makes me feel like, oh my God, is anybody going to hear me scream? And that's a much different reaction because am I safe? Am I playful? Am I flirting versus I'm in the basement? Oh my God, is anybody going to hear me? And like When I said that to him, he was like, I wasn't trying a power move. And I'm like, it's not that you are, but you guys have to think about how am I going to feel? How am I going to perceive it? Rather than us all the time looking over our shoulder and us all the time responsible for exits and alleys and where we walk, what time we walk. And that's the kind of thing is getting men to be more conscious of their surroundings and how we could interpret it. And it is tricky. It's not easy. We're all in a bit of a mental health haze after all of this lockdown and all this stuff, but being more conscious and being more conscious of how your efforts might be perceived is a good idea. And like, if women are safer, we all have a better life. I've been in a relationship for 10 years, and so I'm just starting to date again. And, like, having an exit plan, that's not a great way to meet somebody. Like, that's not like, oh, this is fun. That's like, okay, where are my exits? Like, my friends all know where I am. Like, I'm 43. I hate that my best friend has me tracked on her phone. Like, that's just ridiculous.
0: (laughs) I hear you. You start to notice the messages on the back of the toilet doors that tell you to alert the barman.
1: But again, Ask Angela... They printed out a bunch of posters. They've done no training. They haven't followed any of it up. It's a PR thing. It's not an actual program.
0: Yeah. And it's just annoying that it should have to fall to a kind of
1: bartender. Exactly. Or just, you know, the good citizen. This is my whole thing. Like, people ask me all the time about, like, what people can do, what people can do. Like, by the time a knight in shining armor has to rescue me, I just don't want to have to get rescued. I don't want to be put in danger to begin with. I don't want another man to have to rescue me. I just don't want to get attacked. And that's the thing is it's like all of these solutions that involve somebody else swooping in to save me. I don't want to have to save myself. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> they're like, go and take a
1: martial arts class. <laughs> that's right. And then like, I feel mixed about that stuff because if it makes me more confident, absolutely do it. And I'm not saying for people not to be aware of their surroundings. I just resent
0: it. I do as well because it, it really harks back to the really patriarchal days where you had a chaperone and men had, you know, <sighs> I can just really easily get into this very binary conversation of like, oh, well, you know, you said you wanted equality, not chivalry and not this kind of, and it's like, that's, come on, like, that's just, there's so some nuance in that. We're talking about physical safety here, not holding a door open and that sort of thing. It's a a bigger thing. But I have noticed a difference. I've noticed that that there's an opening up, even if you can just have the conversation to begin with. And I think the challenge I always try to reduce the defensiveness, acknowledge the challenge that women have to not try as much as possible to not come into it with anger because it doesn't build the bridge and it doesn't allow you to have an expansive conversation about even where the violence comes from, you know, because I acknowledge that it has deeper roots than the one-off murder here and there. It's a systemic thing too. And if we can all acknowledge that these are deep-rooted norms built on systems and kings and queens from bygone eras to a degree maybe then we've gotten a chance of not feeling like it's a personal attack all the time.
1: And that's the thing. There was an article in Stylist yesterday about what men can do and how bad toxic masculinity and that term is for these discussions, because then backs do go up and they're like, I'm not toxic. Like what, you know? And so it's interesting, instead of dumbing it down, men don't need a baby step through. It needs to be like, this is how much it affects my every day. And these are the ways you could make my day better. These are the ways you can make other women's days just a little easier. And like, rather than this paint by numbers routine I do think we make it really, really weird for men. We make it weird for men to discuss their feelings. We make it weird for men to be dads. Like we talk about, oh, I'm out for the night. So he's taking care of the kids. Here's like the 15 instructions. He's not a freaking child.
0: Yeah. Just let him do it. <laughs> Work it out. Yeah, I completely agree. One avenue I remember having a conversation with a friend about was, there's a documentary on Netflix, I think, about a woman who's using pole dancing as a way to help some women who've had sexual abuse reconnect with their bodies. And I just thought that's uh, something that's not necessarily acknowledged that what that one moment of rape can do is a legacy of actually shutting down sex altogether. And look, I'm pretty sure no men out there really want that. You don't want a, a whole host of women who you know, don't enjoy that side of life and feel disconnected from themselves. So talking about that, that's that's the result of it, that you become... Like you know, you shut all of that,
1: and I think women aren't open, like the judgment stuff from women is really hard, too, and the oh, she's a slut, she's this, she's that, the other thing. I just think we paint ourselves into corners where we limit our own choices and we limit our own ability to really accept when people want different choices, people want different options, people want to express themselves and their sexuality in different ways, and to be honest, like. Entering activism circles, having not done it, has been quite difficult because I do not fit the profile of a feminist activist. And coming in late, coming in as a 43-year-old and the amount of profile we've gotten and the amount of platform that we've gotten, we have to be really honest that they don't give this kind of platform to non-white women. They don't give the same platform when Sarah was killed as opposed to Sabina Nessa. yeah. It's how media plays it. It's how we play it. It's who we work with and who we learn from. Because I don't know. I don't have all the answers about the sector because I've not been in the sector. There's so many experts. But the problem is the police and the government aren't calling on experts. You know, they're not calling on anyone to get that knowledge in because I'm certainly not the knowledge spout of all of this stuff. I haven't spent 25 years working on it and, and knowing what programs work. It's the women on the ground that I'm on their shoulders, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I'd like I I want to bring it back a bit to you and and the kind of almost like change of identity. And and also the, the profile of an activist that you say like you're not really the typical feminist activist, which begs the question, what is and why should it be boxed and labelled in a particular way? It's really I mean, for me, activism is about a set of skills. And what you clearly have is an ability to get on a box and talk about this stuff in a way that evidently makes people listen. And that you're in a web of other women who have different skills.
1: And I think some of it is, for me, a lot of the time talking about the language used because using intersectional feminism and using misogyny versus saying this applies to every single woman in every aspect of life, no matter if you're in Brixton and you're black and you're disabled and you're 64, you know, like making the examples less about the terms that are used in school and pedagogy. I was a women's studies major, so I know the background. I know some of the terms. But using those terms in your tweets, in your messaging makes it for an elite sector of the population. It doesn't make it for every woman. And there's plenty of things that I wouldn't go to because I would think me walking in in stilettos coming from work would not be the room that's accepting of who I am. And that's part of the problem is I've definitely in the past had issues even in college, being judged by the fact that I wear a lot of makeup and I only date men and that's my circle. And instead of being the type of person that goes to protest every weekend and those circles and how those circles intertwine. And the thing that's happened with the crime and policing bill is everyone needs to be against it. We need every single group. We need Extinction Rebellion. We need every single women's group because it impacts all of us. And that's where this splintered. Like, I didn't really care about my human right to protest until they took it away from me. And then I spent months fundraising to get this over the line. And for me, the fundraising was the most painful part because I don't know how very well for any of my work or anything I've ever done to separate my identity from that. And because I wasn't working, going tap in hand to everyone I knew, I found incredibly painful and incredibly exposing because I grew up quite poor. It felt like I was telling everyone I was poor again. I really, really struggled with doing it.
0: Oh, interesting. So that was the part of the activism that you found that, yeah. Oh my God, I hated it. I, like I hated it. <laughs> but you were successful at it. <laughs> we got it over the line, but it was
1: like my stomach, like I couldn't sleep. I had some therapy about it because I was walking like seven hours a day just to not look at my phone and to see if the money went up or not. Like I was really, really struggling with going hat in hand to people.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. because that's the part I find easy because it's it's an obviously good cause. You just ask people to put money towards a good cause. I feel like in British culture, that's very normal. Like we used to go around all my friends and family and go, "Can you give me five quid for this?" So, oh my God, like yeah. <laughs> it,
1: it, it's like even talking about it makes makes oh, my skin grow.
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: like, it was the one thing that I struggled with the most, and I didn't think we were going to get over the line, and so I felt like it was such a rejection. And now that the case has had so much publicity and we got cost capping, but like what it takes for normal people to get a judicial review through, it's a huge process and hugely expensive.
0: What was it that really kept you going? Because you say you got it over the line and then now it's kind of blown up and everybody's probably is looking to you to go like, wow, you are incredible. You've done this amazing thing. And there must be so many moments. And, and also, you're know, going back to your whole transformation and giving up alcohol and everything. All those moments when you're like, what am I doing? Like, is this going to work? Am I going in the right direction? Or like, what was it that made you go, you know, I'm going to keep going?
1: You get little times where it's different motivations. I did a lecture at Leeds about political event planning. And every girl in the class added me on LinkedIn and they read everything I do and they comment on everything I do. And they're just like, this is amazing. And talking to young women journalists, that's the other part that was like huge for us. I was being interviewed by the BBC when we found out about the handcuffing thing and we just all sat there and cried and held hands. You know, like the women that I've been introduced to because of the work has been incredible. Mandu Reed, who runs the Women Equality Party, Charlotte Proudman, who's a barrister who I've done stuff with. And most of them I met on TV appearances. Like, and then we've just become friends because it's such a weird part of the world when you're talking about this stuff all day and it's vulnerable you know like it's really hard to talk about dead women all day and then feel bravado and feel like you're fine walking down the street it's been so public and I don't think I would have ever done it if I was the size I used to be because of the hate stuff and the people that would have called me fat and ugly and everything else so it's been easier to just concentrate on my words because they're calling me a stupid American and telling me to go back to America but
0: they're not commenting on how I look oh wow
1: yeah. Oh, I, on TV.
0: yeah i hadn't thought about that at all i've got a friend who's on tv a lot and we talk about this a lot the
1: unsolicited uh penis pictures <laughs> Not fun when you're yeah. on tv about women's safety and the men send you their penises
0: yeah oh even though it's a minority they're so loud because of it and then it feels like that's the dominant thing that stays in your mind completely but you're right you've touched on a really important point that it's the connections that you make along the way that make it worth it and the fact that because you're talking about such a vulnerable issue that the connections will be stronger because of it. So it's not like we just talked about, Oh, what do you do? What do I do? We talked about something big.
1: It's like, I have some women friends that are in their fifties and some that are in their sixties. And then I have their daughters. So it's really feeling like,
0: yeah, you, oh, you tweeted about this the other day. like that you should have women in your, um, you should have friends who have women in their older than, and younger than you. And I was like, You're absolutely spot on because that's what I got from doing the Pirate Network, which I'd never had before. And I had a very homogenous network. And I thought about it. I was like, wow, yeah, I've got some 25-year-old female friends. And then I've got loads of our pirate crew in their 50s who I adore and have taught me so much.
1: Learning from them and asking advice. So I have three adopted sisters from China and the baby is 20. And so when I was home, we were talking about how she's sexualized and how men fetishize her and how when she's talking about dating, like you don't want somebody that's going to make remarks or only want to sleep with them because she's an Asian young woman and the anti-Asian American hate stuff that's happening in America. And so being able to access those kind of conversations and know that it will never be my experience, but how important it is for me to hear and learn from those experiences, I think is really, really powerful. Also, being a safe space for people to come, which can be too much. I get a lot of stories and I'm not trained in all of it. And that can overwhelm. We're almost a year in, we're two months off of a year. And I do feel like I've helped amplify voices and I've helped families and I've helped women have discussions they might not have had otherwise.
0: Oh, 100%. And also every single time it becomes more public and one person is a public representation of it, you are creating a new dimension
1: But it's horrific that we get so many calls every time somebody else is dead. That feels awful. Like vigils, I have a really mixed thing because the community of them and I go to them, but it gives politicians and the media a way to picture something and then nothing happens. I want more substance. I want more actual change that makes us safer. And so our mission statement is we use legislation, community action and education, legislation and community action to ensure no woman has to text me when you get home. And like 10-year-olds understand the text me when you get home. We all do it all the time. And that's where we couldn't just be about any violence against women at any time because they were calling me every time somebody was raped. And I was like, I don't have anything to say other than this is horrible. And I can't just constantly say this is horrible because where does that take us? This week, I was just rage texting all week (laughs) about the parties. But like the thing I wrote about a birthday party got a million impressions and you you get all this attention and then you're like, oh my God, I don't want this attention. I'm having a really bad week. But it's this idea that number 10 was having the police be bouncers for them and open and hold the door while they were kneeling on us. It's that double standard that I just can't let go. And I can't stop fighting the fact that to the political favor of the police versus shutting us up and shutting us down.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is very, very political. I was just interested because there's a topic I want to touch on you just said that you have mixed feelings about vigils in general because they become these kind of showcases almost rather than something that creates meaningful action. But they are also intended to be a space to acknowledge the death of somebody and for whoever is involved in that, whoever feels in any way connected to it, to come and honour that in a way. And it does seem to me that with Sarah Everard's death, it was highlighted that we need that. It's been really on my mind recently because of just with COVID and a lot of my friends, have lost parents in the last couple of years. And they're all just grouped together without the delineation of their pain. Exactly. And, and actually, nobody knows what to do with it. The pain and the pain is not linear either. It goes up and it comes down. So even a year on and there are certain obviously... it feels like
1: kind of like after World War Two when all the men died, it feels like all of the parents and everybody that's died has just been put into this bucket of COVID deaths. My mom died three years ago, and I can't even fathom if it was just grouped in with stuff. Like it was such a horrific time for me, but it was individual, obviously. So it's a really, really hard thing. And actually, the reason I said I was going to do a vigil was because when I was at Stylist and the Charlie Hebdo massacre happened, we just stumbled out of the building and ended up at Trafalgar Square and every journalist was there. And we were just all together thinking about an editorial meeting that got shot up. So, like the reason that I said I was going to do a vigil is that had been such a profound night for me. And it was an outpouring and it was support and it was community and it validified how awful and crazy it was. Whereas I went to Ashley Murphy's at the Irish Center. And it was beautiful, but it it was like the beginning of January. And I was like, how many vigils this year? How many times will I stand here? And one of the girls in my group was like, I'm so sick of buying flowers for women that will never get them. And that broke me. A woman wrote a post that was like, if I get killed, I want a riot, not a vigil. And that's (laughs) definitely where I'm at right now. But I also understand the need for the community. And I understand the need to see other people and to hold hands and see other women. It's a very conflicted part of me.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's what I'm I'm saying. Is is it a protest or is it a space to acknowledge death and whatever rituals you might want to have within that space? Like, And reflections. I don't know, I just feel it's lacking somehow. And it's partly on my mind because I went to the Crossbones Graveyard. It's a small public garden that's built on the bones of sex workers from the 1800s. Was it the Earl of Winchester? I'm going to get this wrong. I'll look it up after. And they call the women his geese. It's built by my friend's dad, actually. This wooden shelter with a big goose wing. There's lots of little rituals and tokens about death in the garden from different cultures. There's obviously the kind of Mexican Day of the Dead little statue. Then there's something from Japan. And
1: is this a challenge for the audience though to come up with a way where we show anger and rage and show remembrance or some way that's like a midway range? I like I don't know, and I hate going to them, and it tears me up but I also want to show my sign of respect but I also don't want politicians and media just to use that as a way of being like okay we covered it next
0: I'm not necessarily saying that vigils that are public are the thing that we need but something so we can process these things in a more regular and healthy way and not in the way that you've sort of said well I don't want to go every single time there's a death and like have to grieve all over again for every single person but if there were spaces where we spoke about it actually even just speaking about it more openly I don't know the answers either, but it's definitely something that is not a social norm. And given how, as you said, COVID has affected us all so much and the death kind of hangs over. I mean, there's people close to me who have developed definitely serious anxiety and panic attacks that are down to their sense of mortality because of the last couple of years.
1: And that's the thing is, I think we all will come out of this very differently. And mine's been pretty public and pretty radical, but it's embodying space. And for me with the women that have died in the last year and the women that I relate to, like Julia Jones was a 50 year old PCOS in Kent and her dog was with her. And like that part kills me. And then with the Ashley Murphy that she was running, I run along the canal every day. It's whatever little details that are like, I just want to wrap them all up and make it not have happened. And I know that's not possible, but it just is this need to keep going If it makes anyone any safer. I don't know.
0: Yeah. We're not going to end on this somber note. I would like to return to the fact that you are just incredibly inspiring, Jamie. And what you've done is demonstrate something we often say on this podcast and in general, that it begins with the inner rebellion. It begins with the ability to change yourself into some degree and how much space that opens up for you to see change in the rest of the world, the possibility for it. And it's more of a statement. You're a demonstration to everyone else who's listening to this that it can be done no matter what your starting place is, where, what stage of life you're at, whatever preconceptions you think you have about yourself and what you can achieve. Your whole story just demonstrates that, wow, you can lead a revolution.
1: But radical change can be that you've never talked to strangers before and you talked to two strangers this year. Like it can be really tiny, tiny acts of rebellion. It can be buying strangers a cup of tea or leaving some money at a homeless shelter for biscuits, you know, like it doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be demonstrable, but I'm really happy with who I am. When I wake up in the morning, I don't go to bed and think that I've wasted my time. Like I am really proud of myself. And last Sunday was really, really hard because I had the biggest week of my life and I couldn't call and talk to my mom about it. And I cried all day and I talked to her best friend and I talked to a bunch of my friends that don't have moms anymore. And she would have been so proud. And I'm sad she wasn't alive when I quit drinking. It's tempered with that. I also know that she would have been in court and she would have been as pissed off as I am right now. <laughs> and rage fuels me. That's who I am. I'm from Philly. It's don't make me go Philly on your ass all the time. So that's who I am, is that rather than me beating people up on the street, I'm beating them up with words and policies and and trying to make things better.
0: But you do still have your gran, right?
1: I do still have my grandmother. Can we
0: finish on your grandmother? Oh, my grandmother who
1: says, like, don't spit in my face and tell me it's raining.
0: I want, I want to say uh, a correspondent of The Rock.
1: <laughs> that's actually my best friend's grandmother who I did oh, that for. Okay. And she's 102 and she's The Rock's grandmother now. And The Rock sings to her every year, I um, which that. I set up, which is amazing. But um, again, that's another tenant of my life. You don't ask, you don't get. And so I tweeted him and then he did it three years ago and she's still kicking and she loves her rock and he sent her a case of tequila it's amazing
0: that is amazing i thought you know that just speaks the yeah you don't ask you don't get which is such a, a big part of being an activist doing everything you've done well thank you so much for having the conversation thank you so much thank you so much amy you're wonderful thank you for tuning in today Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at BeMorePirate on Instagram or Twitter or visit BeMorePirate.com. See you next time.